Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, Republicans managed to win back four of the seven California congressional seats. Democrats flipped from red to blue in the 2018 midterm elections. Two of those races were won by Korean-American women. That's right. Republicans Young Kim and Michelle Steele knocked off two freshman Democrats in Orange County. And today... We're talking with Sam O. Oh. He's the political consultant who managed those two winning campaigns. We'll hear how he pulled it off and maybe what Republicans hope it says about the party's future in California or maybe the United States. Who knows? We'll hear what he has to say. But first, Marisa, we've got to talk. Uh, there's a lot to talk about, actually. Uh, for, <laughs> let's start with the pandemic, because that's all we can talk about, it seems, with good reason. Uh, Daily records seen for coronavirus cases, the ICU bed situation, really bad, especially in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Uh, Positivity rates up. It's all bad news, basically. Uh, And uh, the governor's taking some heat for it as well. Yeah. Do you remember, Scott, back... I don't know, four or five years ago when we used to have a break on politics between uh, You're right around now, I think. Yeah, December, the slow time. It's nothing slow. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's been, you know, nationally rates have been really climbing. Um, We are in a better position, you know, than some some places, some states, but certainly a lot of concern from the governor's office. a lot of pushback, you know, from kind of the usual suspects. I think Republican lawmakers have been the most outspoken about some of these uh, orders of shelter in place again. Um, and, I, and I do think it's worth, you know, just noting that uh, the playground issue. I know it's not the biggest thing for everybody, but I got two young kids and this was one area where the pushback actually worked. We saw kind of bipartisan concern that closing playgrounds at a time when kids can't go to school when we're all stuck at home with our lovely children who we love dearly um that we need you know a place to 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 go out and play and and especially in cities like san francisco where you know people don't always have backyards so they did reverse course on that one thing but um still getting a lot of flack around schools and some of the other decisions absolutely and they uh the businesses had a a win this week of sorts in los angeles Uh, the restaurants and i feel so bad for these small businesses generally but you know these restaurants they a lot of them have invested money in these outside dining situations uh, out in the streets with parklets. Uh, and now they're being told, uh, well, you can't use those either. Either you can only do takeout. And so there was a, a lawsuit actually in L.A. County and a judge said to uh, the county, look, uh, this ban on outside dining, you don't have a lot of data to back this mm-hmm. up. Uh, and so they got to potentially have a reprieve. The problem is, of course, there's still this statewide ban on outside dining. So I'm not sure it's going to help them. But we may well see that same lawsuit uh, brought 
uh, at a state level or certainly to other counties. Yeah, although I think the the existing kind of court decisions have really given the governor a lot of leeway. I, I think this is a question of sort of that the state does have more power in a in a situation like this when the the governor declares an emergency. I mean, but you're right. I think there's a lot of small businesses that are struggling. The spike comes, of course, as we're all preparing for the holidays and retail shops can only be at 20 percent of capacity. I mean, it's 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 really dire out there. And I think that, um, you know, hopefully there's some light at the end of the tunnel. We're seeing more movement on the vaccine front every day. Um, but yeah, certainly a tough time um, for small businesses in general and, and, and the business community broadly. Um, and you got to <laughs> figure that like here in California, at least we have a decent climate in most parts of the state. You know, if you're back east and there's snow, I mean, there's really, it's really got to be tough. So even if there were outside dining, I mean, who wants to sit outside when it's, you know, 25 degrees? Right. Well, I I think you kind of bring up one point, which is like, how well has Newsom been handling this? And we are seeing um, a shuffling of the deck in what uh, those on the inside in Sacramento call the horseshoe, the governor's office. Uh, Jim DeBoo will be taking over from Ann O'Leary as chief of staff. Ann O'Leary, of course, was a longtime Clinton um, campaign and supporter. She had been a city attorney in San Francisco. Um, really brilliant woman, but I think had not had experience in Sacramento. And, and I think there's questions about, you know, Newsom's getting some flack for hiring Deboo, who's been a lobbyist for the last several years. But before that, he did work for the speaker and he really knows the building and the legislature. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see if this kind of changes the dynamic between the governor and lawmakers in the coming year. Yeah, he worked for John Perez and he obviously knows how the building works. He has relationships with legislators, which is so important, uh, something that Anna O'Leary really did not have. And he's getting, you know, Debu's getting, uh, there's some criticism out there. He ran the two uh, campaigns to defeat rent control, uh, which were both defeated. Um, And he's worked, I think, for the oil industry as well. But really what Newsom needs is somebody who can be a liaison and and give him some good advice, you know, about how to deal with the legislators. I mean, you know, in in this moment, he's kind of a a one-man band, the governor, because he is doing, was you know, not so much right now, but he was doing all these executive orders. But, you know, we've heard grumblings. We've all heard grumblings from legislators legislators about the relationship, uh, kind of a one-way street. I think they'd like it to be more, you know, a little more even-handed. Yeah, I'm going to be really interested to watch um, Debu kind of navigate this. He's a very calm person. He has a lot of experience, as you mentioned, uh, in the Capitol working for Perez, who was really seen as, I think, a more uh, ruled with an iron fist compared to the current speaker up there. Um, but I, I do think that he's very different on a personality level from a lot of the advisors that Newsom has had in the past, um, both at City Hall here and, and kind of over his time. Of course, we saw one of those advisors uh, charged last week with a really horrific domestic violence incident, uh, Nate Ballard. But I think, yeah, I think this is going to be an interesting time um, within that office. And, and clearly, I mean, just they are not just looking at what's happening in the Capitol, but more broadly, there is this recall effort being pushed by some Republicans in California. They say they've collected about half the signatures they would need to put a recall of Newsom on the ballot, um, and they have until March after a court order. So, the, the, you know, I think the, New- the Newsom is kind of watching his six a little bit, yeah, both internally definitely. and externally. Well, you know, I remember back in, what was it, 2003, you know, when there was the recall signature gathering effort against Gray Davis, and everybody said, oh, a recall has never succeeded before, and then a guy named Daryl Issa stepped up with a $2 million check. Right. And really got that, gave that some rocket fuel, and we know what happened there. You know, this is a different situation. I mean, back then, you know, Gray Davis was not that personally popular. There were rolling blackouts. Uh, the economy was not great. Uh, 
But as you said, you can't underestimate these things because you never know. You know, you have I know we, you and I have both been talking to, you know, especially Republican operatives. And, you know, they think this whole French laundry issue, uh, something that's very easy for people to understand, uh, you know, in terms of uh, don't do as I uh, say not as I do, being a bit of a hypocrite there. London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, also kind of reinforcing that image. Uh, Sheila Kuehl down in Los Angeles, same thing, uh, was seen dining after telling everybody in L.A. County not to do that outside. So, yeah, it's uh, you can't underestimate those things. It's uh, it's not an operation right now that looks like it can actually get to those probably two million signatures needed. But, you know, it's uh, the governor's office is struggling a bit. I think uh, it's fair to say. We'll see. And I, everyone I talk to up there says they are taking this recall seriously. And, and, and certainly even if it's uh, an, an uphill battle, if it got on the ballot to actually recall him, that would be a huge distraction and time suck for the governor on its own. You know, and that's not the same. I mean, who knew? Like you said, in 2003, no one thought this would happen. And then Schwarzenegger uh, stepped up and we all know how that ended. Yeah, so. well, and Cruz Bustamante, also the lieutenant governor, yeah, said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll be governor. And that, yeah. that didn't help Greg Davis either. <laughs> you know, in, in all of this, of course, uh, the governor's got some huge uh, potential appointments. He's got uh, Kamala Harris's seat. We know he's going to have to fill that. And we're thinking maybe as soon as next week that'll happen. A lot of people pressuring him to name a Latino. Uh, we've never had a Latino senator in California. A, a group of uh, folks today held a press conference pressuring him to appoint an African-American woman, Kamala Harris, the only black uh, woman in the U.S. Senate right now. So uh, and then, of course, if he appoints, let's say, Alex Padilla, the secretary of state. Let's uh, just say, let, just for as example, name, you know, as his name keeps popping up. Will be. <laughs> so then he would get uh, potentially an AG with uh, Javier Becerra if he gets confirmed by the Senate. So you've got three statewide offices that uh, this governor, who is, you know, in some ways struggling with the pandemic and everything else, uh, having an awful lot of power. He also just appointed, by the way, a Supreme Court justice who was just sworn in, uh, Marty Jenkins. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot of. Uh, a lot of political chits, as they say, uh, if you if you end up appointing uh, three people. But you know, as the old saying goes, you make you make one friend and thirty enemies when you appoint somebody. Right. I think the question is, will he? Maybe the reason he's been waiting because the smart money's on Padilla is so that he can announce those two to three appointments all at once. Maybe sort of. You know, even if people aren't as happy that he didn't put, say, you know, women who have been agitating to replace Kamala Harris, the only black female senator with another one, maybe to say, well, at least we've got a we you're putting, you know, somebody else like that into another role. Um, so maybe he's going to try to 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 sort of thread that needle. Scott, before we go, um, really um, in The New Yorker today on online, um, we saw an article really the, the finest point, I would say, being put on sort of rising questions in recent months over uh, Dianne Feinstein, the senior senator from California, and whether, quite frankly, she's up to it mentally to keep and do her job. Um, Jane Merritt, the New Yorker, had a lot of comments from inside her office and within the Capitol just really questioning um, whether she's declined significantly. Yeah, absolutely saying, uh, among other things, her short-term memory is so bad that uh, she forgets when she's been briefed on things. Uh, we saw real concerns around the Judiciary 
committee and the recent confirmation hearing. Uh, so yeah, there is a lot of a lot of unhappiness. Uh, but you know, she's also one of probably ten senators who are in their eighties. Uh, she's not the only one, but she is our uh, senator, and so uh, I think it is something people wondering. Maybe Newsom would have yet another senator to a point if she decides she wants to step down. But that, that of course, and is she just did. We should say uh, agreed not to run for uh, chairwoman of the Judiciary Committee if Democrats take the Senate. A big F. So yeah, kind of All right. stepping we'll, back a little. We'll come back in another show and talk more about that. I'm sure. But we're going to take a short break right now. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Republican campaign consultant Sam O. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, here as almost always with Marisa Lagos. And you probably noticed that Republicans had a, well, we'll say a very good election right here in California. Not at the top of the ticket so much. Joe Biden got swamped, uh, or rather swamped President Trump down the ballot. Uh, there uh, there were some really, some, some little, maybe some surprises. Republican candidates picked up four congressional seats. And our guest today is the political consultant who managed two of those campaigns. Sam O, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. So congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. So let's before we get to uh, this year's election, just let's just go back to 2018. Democrats had really had a clean sweep in Orange County. They flipped four Orange County congressional seats. And so things were looking a little bleak for your party. What was it that you saw that your party saw that that made you think we have an opportunity here? I mean, we, we had to do a lot of self-reflection after what happened in 2018. And it, I, I mean, just in the entire process of just preparing for 2020, I think we had to do a deep dive into what exactly happened, right? I mean, there's been a lot written about the, the blue wave, the green wave, uh, voter enthusiasm. And what I found personally, especially in 39 and 48 in the young Kim and Michelle Steele seats were that obviously we uh, the candidates in 2018 were heavily outspent. 
and ACTLU had a significant uh, part to do with that. And I think the other thing was that independence went overwhelmingly uh, Democrat. I mean, I, I did a deep dive into some of these uh, districts. I think I did four, uh, four out of the seven. And what I was kind of seeing was independents uh, voted for the Democrat by 30 to 50 points. Wow. So that was something that we really had to like kind of figure out, kind of address and kind of like game plan for. Like, how do we or who do we recruit that can appeal to independent voters? Um, and how are they going to be able to kind of narrow that gap? So that was a huge issue uh, issue that we had to address uh, before we even kind of started recruiting candidates. And I think, uh, you know, fortunately for, for me, for uh, the California Republican Party, we were able to recruit some dynamic candidates this time around. I mean, one of them, it was a, it was a rematch, right? Young Kim uh, did, uh, d- did take a seat that she almost won in 2018, <laughs> actually went for a freshman orientation and then had to come back. Um, so, I, I mean, how much is it the candidates, I mean, and we can get more deeper into this, but I'm curious, though, like, how much of it did you see as that being the main focus and how much of it was either embracing or distancing them from Trump? Did that matter in those districts? Because it feels like for four years, he's just really dominated everything about our political discussion. Yeah, I, I mean, if if the race was going to come down to Trump, then I think we we had a very good idea how these seven seats were going to play out again in 2020. And the thing is, we, we were able to recruit dynamic candidates with deep roots in their communities who had a uh, proven track record on like issues important to the voters in these districts, right? So, I mean, one, one of the big things that we saw in the campaign trail time and time again was voters frustrated that their elected officials, that their members of Congress weren't addressing some of the biggest issues of the day, um, rolling blackouts, wildfires, the price of gas was uh, very high early in the cycle. Um, we we had a we had uh, and we still continue to have major issues with homelessness, and we saw none of these incumbents talk about any of these issues. They offered no solutions. They wanted to talk about national politics. They wanted to talk about the president uh, impeaching him, and that's all they uh, you know that's what they wanted to make their uh, tenure in office about. So, you know, we found candidates who were more than happy to talk about these local issues that impacted the affordability issues that people are facing right now. Um, and, and they had proven track records of lowering taxes, trying to make healthcare a little bit more affordable, a little bit more accessible. So these are the things that we talked about. These are the things that like we saw a lot of voters in these districts uh, like uh, want to hear uh, you know, where these uh, candidates uh, stood on these issues, where, you know, I think the Democrats, uh, the Democrats really uh, just wanted to talk about national politics. And I think they didn't do a very good job of, uh, you know, highlighting or even articulating where they stood on these issues or even offering any sort of accomplishments while they were in office. So the two candidates we were, uh, we talked about at the top, Michelle Steele and Young Kim, two Korean-American candidates uh, from Orange County. Talk about the significance of that and how you used that, uh, the fact that they're both immigrants from South Korea, I believe. Uh, you know, how did that play into the campaign and not just the things that were above the 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 surface but kind of below the radar as well yeah i I think i mean look they're unlike any other candidates we've seen in orange county in in recent memory and i think that's that was a way that we could show independent voters that look these are not the typical republican candidates candidates that we've run in the past that they have personal stories that um uh highlight uh different issues in the communities right so like uh, you have Michelle Steele, who is an immigrant from Korea, grew up in Japan, 
Uh, Korean's her first language. Japanese is her se- second language. English is her third language. She uh, came to America. Uh, her mom, uh, being a single a single mom, opened up a, uh, a clothing store in Los Angeles County that w- was fined by the Board of Equalization at the time. It was an unwarranted uh, uh, fine. And they didn't have the means or the ability uh, to speak in English to be able to fight it. So they ended up having just to pay it. And one of the things that Michelle had always talked about uh, from day one is that she wanted to be a strong voice for the voiceless. It's why she later ran for the very agency that uh, kind of penalized her family. And she wanted to like represent like the different communities uh, in her district. So I think it's from a just a very human standpoint that she has a very unique story to tell that really kind of connects her to the different uh, uh, demographics in her d- district. It's very diverse. Uh, there's a large uh, Vietnamese population. And she uh, has done a lot of work in the Vietnamese community over the last 10, 20 years. Her and her husband have been very uh, active on the Asian American uh, uh, front as trying to get them uh, to be involved in the political process, helping identify leaders who want to run for public office. And it's something that like uh, that they weren't just new to. They just didn't uh, show up one day when they, d- they decided to run for uh, Congress, they had deep roots in that community. And at, at the end of the day, I think it was a huge benefit uh, to the campaign that they had these deep roots. They understood the Vietnamese community, knew their issues, took strong positions on the uh, on the issues that they cared about, and even like spoke out against Trump when like uh, the administration uh, came out, I think it was in 2018, 2019, with the Vietnamese refugee uh, executive order. So... <sighs> Candidates matter, obviously. And I think in a minute we can talk about also just what hard workers both of those candidates were and the doors they knocked on. But I'm curious how much you feel like you guys, you all got real a lot of help by some of the rhetoric coming out from the progressive left around, you know, questions of socialist policies and the ability to kind of capitalize on that, the defund the police movement. I mean, were those things that you feel Democrats really handed these candidates kind of a win with? Um, yeah, to an extent, I think, I mean, look, again, the, the voters that we've talked to um, wanted to talk about uh, affordability. They wanted to talk about the the, house, the housing issues, the homelessness issues. And then we have a lot of Democrat uh, incumbents who were talking about, again, socialism and wanting, you know, AB5 and being swept up in all these like kind of big uh progressive issues and the thing is like we wanted to talk about things that required common sense solutions and that was something that we stuck to uh, uh throughout the campaign and yeah no i think it was a huge uh, benefit to both candidates um but yeah i think it just really kind of highlighted in in some ways how out of touch these guys were with their uh you know with their respective districts if you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Maurice Lagos, and our guest today is Sam O. Oh. He's a Republican political consultant, managed a couple of winning congressional campaigns down in Orange County. And uh, Sam, I'm wondering, you know, uh, your those districts uh, were carried by Joe Biden. Um, and I'm just wondering, what did you make of that? Did you anticipate that? How did you compensate for that? What does it tell you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we knew that going into the campaign that like there was a very good chance that the Democrat running for president, the Democrat nominee would carry these districts again. And, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do uh, was create a path to victory that made sense that we thought was realistic. And we need to kind of figure out how do we um, 
how do we close the gap when it comes to Young Kim's race, right? She she lost by a few thousand votes. What can we do there to, to close the gap and make sure that she's in a better position when we knew 100,000 more people would vote this time around than in, in 2018? So how did you um, do that? I, I, I think first things first, I mean, we had to address the money issue, right? We had uh, we had this huge looming uh, act Lou uh, situation that we had to deal with. And I think one of the things that Young Kim did very early on was invest in uh, small dollar contribution programs. And I think one of the things that like hasn't been discussed enough about is that like Republicans can also raise money uh, uh, digitally, uh, direct mail. And uh, one of the uh, recent reports I saw was that Young Kim actually outraised the incumbent Democrat by nearly $2 million in contributions under uh, $200. Uh, Michelle Steele actually outraised Harley Ruda uh, when it came to small dollar contributions as well. So, I mean, that was a huge, uh, you know, that was a huge win for the campaign because it was able to at least close the spending gap so that we could then put ourselves in a better position as we got closer to Election Day to get our messages out, which was we wanted we wanted to talk about uh, the Democrats uh, record versus their rhetoric. I mean, they spent 2018 talking about how they're going to be bipartisan, independent. Um, that they were going to be different, right? And then once they got to Congress, Gil Cisneros, who campaigned on, uh, uh, you know, being different, like voted for Nancy Pelosi after he uh, pledged not to vote for Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the, uh, of the House. That was his first act as a member of Congress. We wanted to talk about that. We wanted to litigate that. Uh, he had a, uh, you know, he had issues with uh, or he, he voted with uh, AOC 92% of the time. Harley Ruta voted with AOC 93% of the time. Harley Ruta is a candidate who went on broadcast television in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles in October saying, hey, I have a dirty secret. I vote with Republicans, right? But it, it didn't jive with voters at the end of the day when we, we were able to like uh, communicate to voters that he, he's, he's a very partisan vote in Congress. He, he isn't who he says he is. And that was something that we wanted to make sure that we... Um, communicate with voters, uh, you know, the last like 60, 90 days of the campaign. And I think we were very effective. And that's uh, largely why I think we were able to get a lot of ticket splitters, too. So speaking of that, though, I mean, the the races two years ago were very close. These races were very close. They took days and weeks to decide. How do you and your clients think about defending these seats moving forward because it seems to me that you know orange county especially these districts have really become battlegrounds essentially sure yeah i, I mean look the voter register the voter registration trends in orange county have been going away from republicans for years now i mean uh, I, I think in in the uh, 48th district uh, michelle Steele's district i think at the turn of um or in 2012, when the lines got redrawn, I think it was a plus, R plus 15 seat. Today, it's a R plus 5 seat. Wow. And so we know how the voter registration trends are uh, moving in Orange County, and we understand that. And I think one of the the things that, um, you know, dynamic candidates, different candidates like Michelle Steele and Young Kim can do is they can look to ethnic communities uh, uh, for additional support, for, for ticket splitters, right? So uh, we, we campaign very heavily in, in the 48th district to uh, Vietnamese voters. And as we know, there's been a lot a lot of uh, report about the Vietnamese votes in Orange County for a very long time. They are people who uh, show up to vote. They, they lean Republican. And when we kind of started doing like some deeper dives into the Vietnamese language voters in the 48th district, we noticed that the, uh, 
they were by far and away Republican. And the second largest group was actually independents. And the third largest party registration amongst uh, Vietnamese voters was Democrats. These are folks that we knew that if we communicated to them, talked to them about the issues that they cared about most, pocketbook issues, right? Taxes, helping them with their small businesses, and talking about communism too, because like that's a major issue in the Vietnamese community. Right. And, yeah. you, and you know, Michelle has a very unique story in that her parents, her parents fled North Korea. Well, and I actually got a chance to I actually got a chance to talk with her about that in 2018. We were, we were all down in Orange County, and I went to an event that she held, and it was you know, great to talk with her. But you know, Sam, we had this frustration uh, that you know we wanted to talk to both Michelle Steele and Young Kim, and for that matter, Mike Garcia and David Valadeo, and they just, for whatever reason, they none of them would talk to us. And, you know, we have a statewide program, uh, the, we get on national public radio. So it's not like it's, you know, we're not, it's not heard in the districts. I'm just wondering, like, what's your, what's the calculation on the part of We can't campaigns? get Kevin McCarty either, McCarthy yeah. either, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what's the, you know, what's the calculation uh, on the part of the campaigns? As far as... Uh, like who uh, to talk to, who not to. Yeah, what, what mainstream media you guys do, or is it just so fractured at this point that you all think it's not even worth talking to, you know, the NPR station versus a smaller, you know, maybe Korean language paper, whatever it is? Um, I, I think it just really depends on the uh, kind of the timing. I mean, I mean, I encourage both of them to talk to the press regularly. And I think it's important because... Look, you guys have an important role in the political process here as, as we get closer to Election Day, too. And it's important for us to be able to articulate, like, where they stand on, again, these issues. And if they're not, um, you know, using those opportunities to their advantage, then I think it's a huge mistake. Now, I, I don't know exactly what happened and as far as uh, trying to get them on this show. But, you know, the, <laughs> well, in the future, you can help I think us in the future, OK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I still want now, to talk to them. <laughs> now they're congresswomen. We definitely want to get them on. Um, all right. Well, we like to end on something lighter. I know you have two adorable dogs, but we wanted to go somewhere a little bit more controversial, which is that your Twitter, uh, your uh, profile says that In-N-Out is overrated. And we just want to have you, ask you to defend that. And how did you win campaigns in Orange County with that statement? <laughs> I don't know if it's defensible. I um, I don't know if I should even try. Frankly, I, I I think the only thing I can say is maybe uh, I am I'm originally from the East Coast, so I do have a little bit of a preference for Five Guys. Uh, but again, I'm sure I'll be getting a lot of uh, heat for this uh, in the near future here. So right. the most controversial thing our Republican consultant <laughs> says on the show today. Yeah. Yeah. Five yeah. Guys isn't bad either. I'll, I'll give you that. All right, it's Sam. Like the most popular thing I've ever said. So. <laughs> Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That does it for today's Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at mlagos. I and like In-N-Out. <laughs> I love In-N-Out, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, it's, I got the app on my phone. Scott Schaefer here. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. <laughs> Who knew there was an app? Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randadid Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.